still in Daniel. Tonight we'll start on chapter 5, and God willing, we'll get through 5 and 6. And that takes us through the narrative preamble to the book. That will take us through Belshazzar's feast and the lion's den. And then at the beginning of 7, a couple of things happen. And the language switches from Aramaic back to Hebrew. And the, the other thing that happens is we start getting into the prophetic stuff. So the first six chapters are historical narrative. What it's doing is it's establishing Daniel's character. So it you know, shows him to be willing to go around the king's edict in order to eat properly as a young Jewish boy should. It shows him able to interpret dreams. And he gets the same name from Nebuchadnezzar as Joseph got from Pharaoh, which is revealer of secrets. And then we have several vignettes where you see historical stuff which establishes his character. So tonight we should get to the end of that. And then next week, God willing, we will launch off into the prophetic stuff, which is what everybody really cares about anyway. So, chapter 5. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they were brought in golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and wood, and stone. This obviously mirrors the beginning of Esther, where you have a king that is throwing a major party for all of his nobles. Big extravagant party to show, A, that he's the boss, and B, to show his generosity to those who are his subjects. Belshazzar is not the king, although it says King Belshazzar. He is actually the son of Nabonidus. And Nabonidus is the king of Babylon, but Nabonidus, for some reason, doesn't hang around Babylon. So what he's done is he left his son as regent in Babylon while he's off doing something else. One of the things that we'll see is when he's looking for somebody to interpret the writing on the wall, he says, I will make you third ruler in the kingdom because that's the best he's got to offer since he is second ruler in the kingdom himself. In other words, I will make you next after me, which is number three. It also describes him as Nebuchadnezzar's son. What it means in this context is descendant. Like in some places, Jacob would be described as Abraham's son even though he is Abraham's grandson. So it means descendant as opposed to literal first descendant of the king. The idea that he is not Nebuchadnezzar's direct descendant is from secular history. And the same sort of thing happened with Nebuchadnezzar because his father was not terribly interested in being king either and Nebuchadnezzar was off conquering stuff, uh, Egypt and Israel specifically, 
and had to come hurrying back to take over the throne himself. So there's something about Babylonian kings that they don't like hanging around Babylon. And Babylon is on the plain of Shinar, which is in the same neighborhood as Baghdad is today. Not co-located with Baghdad, but in the same geographical region. And one of the things about the summers there, especially when we get to the Medes and the Persians, is they don't like hanging around down there in the summer. And they have summer palaces up in Shushan, which are in the mountains to the east of Babylon. So the idea of going off for a summer vacation kind of thing is perfectly sound. So anyway, we've got the party that's going on here. And Belshazzar is trying to impress all of his nobles with his generosity and all that kind of stuff. And apparently the normal stuff isn't sufficient for him, so he goes and he drags out the stuff that Nebuchadnezzar looted from the temple in Jerusalem. And you'll remember Nebuchadnezzar did two expeditions to Israel. The first expedition, Israel was not on his radar other than a place to pass through. He was really at war with Egypt. And so he swoops on by Jerusalem on his way to Egypt. And in that process, he lays siege to Jerusalem fairly briefly and makes a treaty with Jerusalem. And remember, this is after the northern kingdom has been destroyed by the Assyrians. That happened a little over 100 years earlier. So Judah is all there is of Israel, if you will, at that time. So as Nebuchadnezzar goes down the first time, he just sort of sideswipes them and puts them under tribute. He says, you know, I don't need to conquer you guys, but you're going to become a vassal state, which means you send taxes and all that kind of stuff. And oh, by the way, I'm going to take a bunch of your noble young men as hostages, and I'm going to take some stuff out of your God's temple to show that my God is stronger than your God. That all happened on the first go-around. That's how Daniel winds up in Babylon. Second time around, it's reported to him that Israel is in rebellion. In fact, they do go into rebellion. So the second time when he comes back, he destroys the place, levels it. So anyway, Belshazzar is looking to be hot stuff in front of all of his lords and so forth by dragging out the gold vessels that were taken from the temple and using them as party wear. And this is also designed, by the way, to give a religious background, if you will, what happens to Belshazzar and what happens to Babylon. This guy disrespects our God, so what's going to happen now is God is going to step in and explain things to it. So verse 5. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. It was a brown toga moment. So you have this disembodied hand starts writing on the wall and Belshazzar is going to need a change of linen. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation, 
shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Remember I said earlier, the third ruler is the best he's got to offer because his dad is actually king. He is the regent. So the best he can offer is number three. Notice that Daniel is not involved here. At this point in history, Daniel is an old man and Daniel is retired. So these people are the current crop of staff, spiritual advisors, if you will, and Daniel is not involved at this point. In fact, it isn't clear that Belshazzar even knows about Daniel because Daniel was Nebuchadnezzar's chief of staff, and so we're now quite a ways down from there. Verse 8, Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. You remember the deal with Nebuchadnezzar when these same, not the same actual people, but the same bureau, if you will, in the government, was unable to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And Nebuchadnezzar was in the process of wiping them all out when Daniel stepped up. So the fact that they are unable to do anything with this vision, I will suggest, makes them all somewhat nervous. And Belshazzar himself is terrified. And one of the things this does is it speaks to his character. Because you remember in the case of Pharaoh, where you had Moses and Aaron doing signs and wonders, even until you get to, I think, the sixth or seventh plague, Pharaoh was uncomfortable, but he was not spooked. Belshazzar is not what you would call a military commander, I guess is the best way to describe it. He's sort of grown up in the palace. It does not appear that he has a whole lot of gumption about it. Verse 10. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. Now, notice that the queen is not part of this party. I am assuming this woman is his mother. And I am assuming that when he goes into a panic, somebody runs out of there and says, quick, go get his mom, get him calmed down. That's a guess on my part, but she shows up. So verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the great gods in the days of your father. Light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. The point I'm making is we are at least two generations away from Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel is retired. He is no longer in charge of the Chaldeans, astrologers, magicians, and so forth. So when they go to the local magic office and say, get in here, we need an interpretation, 
Daniel is not naturally called because he's no longer in active duty. But the queen mother, being a generation older than Belshazzar, apparently remembers him. Because remember, Daniel was essentially chief of staff of the empire, if you will, under Nebuchadnezzar. So before his retirement and before the death of Nebuchadnezzar, he would have been extremely well known to everybody. So the fact that the queen mother knows who he is and knows his reputation is perfectly straightforward. And one other side thing, you remember Rehoboam, when his father died and he ascended to the throne, asked, what should I do about taxes and stuff? And he got two sets of opinions. The older, wiser head said, what you ought to do is reduce taxes and everybody will follow you. The young bucks that had just grown up in the court and were his own age says, you got to establish your reputation, O king. you got to lay it on. you got to show them that you're really tough. And what happens? The kingdom splits. I am suggesting that there's some of that going on with Belshazzar. And the fact that nobody in the room knows about Daniel indicates to me that this is probably a young crowd. This is, again, not scriptural. This is a guess. It's genealogy. But the fact that they have to go get the queen mother in order to get Daniel, who has a serious reputation among Nebuchadnezzar's generation, indicates that this may be a younger crowd. Verse 13. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. Now I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now, if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Notice we've got the third ruler again. Now, I am going to suggest to you, and it's hard to tell this with biblical writing, but Daniel's response leads me to believe this. It's sort of like this young king has got his nose up in the air. Oh, you're one of the uh, exiles from Judah that my father brought. Uh, I've understood that maybe you can interpret things. Given Daniel's reaction to this young twit, I am suggesting that's probably what's going on. Daniel clearly does not have a lot of respect for the guy. Verse 17, Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. In other words, keep your stupid trinkets, O king, I don't care. So let your gifts be for yourself, and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. Now, Daniel knows what this says. Do you remember when Daniel gave the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the tree? The tree that gets cut down and the stump bound with bronze and iron. And what is the first thing that Daniel says when he realizes what the dream means? O king, may this be for someone else. Notice Daniel doesn't do that, okay? So clearly he doesn't have a lot of respect for this kid. 
get the impression that the two of them don't like each other. And I get the impression that it's an instant dislike because Belshazzar doesn't remember Daniel. But I sort of get the impression that he tries to, you know, hi-hat him, and then Daniel swats it back to him. Verse 18, O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And again, I am suggesting, hey, O king, let me tell you what happens to really proud rulers. The best of the best, and even the best of the best, when God lays his hand on him, is brought low. You little twit. 21. He was driven from among the children of men, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. But you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. Remember, we're having a picnic, a drinking party, out of the vessels of the temple. The reason for this is this kid has not humbled himself before God, even though he should have known, based on Nebuchadnezzar's decree, that the God of the Hebrews was the real deal. Pick it up 22 at the beginning of the sentence. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you, your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. And as I say in parentheses, arrogant little twit, this is still Daniel speaking. So back up a little bit. But the God in whose hand is your breath, and whose are all your ways, you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, mene, tekel, farsen. This is the interpretation of the matter. Many, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanted. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple, and a gold chain was put around his neck. And a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. A couple of things. Part of the reason why this party was held is Babylon was under siege by the Persians. And Babylon is a monstrous city, like Nineveh. Remember, Nineveh was three days' ride. Babylon is similarly large. And Babylon has the advantage that a river runs through it, so you can't cut off its water 
and you can't starve people out. So this banquet that's being held is, oh, yeah, we're under siege. Let's have a party. The river that runs through Babylon is the Euphrates River, one of the major rivers of the ancient world. And so what the Persians did is they went upstream and they cut a diversion canal and they dammed the river and dried it up. And then they walked under the gates on the riverbank and walked right in and took the place over. That's what happened here. So at least the little snot was faithful to his word and did give Daniel a gold chain and a uh, purple robe. However, being third rulers, that didn't last. Chapter 6. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three presidents of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other presidents and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So Daniel rises to the top again, much like Joseph did in captivity. And one of the things that's hard to find is someone who is competent and loyal. And Daniel has proved himself to be so and continues to be so. Verse 4. Then the presidents and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So a couple of things going on. Remember, Daniel is not a Mede, a Persian, or a Chaldean, or a Babylonian. Daniel is a Jew. So the idea of making him the number one, or basically the chief of staff, again, does not sit well with all of the people around him who are contending for power. This is just like what's going on in Washington right now. Uh, They're they're snarling and snapping at each other, and they're aiming to take the top guy down. And the fact that he is not of their blood, they feel very much about him like the Washington establishment feels about Trump. Trump is not one of them. He doesn't play the game the same way. He didn't come up through the same channels. He didn't clerk for somebody in the Supreme Court and you know all of the things that you have to do to rise in Washington. He just sort of landed on them all of a sudden. They regard Daniel the same way. And the reaction toward Daniel is exactly the same as the reaction of official Washington toward Trump. We need to get rid of this guy. He's making this look bad. For six. Then these presidents and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, when all of the bureaucrats get together and come by and make a unified decision, you know it's not good. When you get a bipartisan agreement in Congress about a law, you know it's not good. When everybody agrees, you know that they're out to some skullduggery. So they are here. 
So you have Darius, who's reasonably new on the job. Now, he's not the king of the Medes and Persians. He is a regional administrator, just taken over. So what they're saying is, oh, king, hey, you've just taken over. What we need to do is we need to make sure everybody recognizes you, recognizes your name, you cement your authority here, and you get everybody marching in the same direction. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to set it up so for 30 days, everybody, when they pray, has got to pray to you. And that will make everybody focus on you, and that will cement your governorship. That's what's going on here. And Darius, being fat, dumb, and happy, says, oh, okay, sounds good to me. Not to mention the fact, of course, that they're playing on his pride. We're saying, now, okay, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So the deal is, and we'll see this again when we get to Esther, once a law has been promulgated, it cannot be revoked. This is by way of papal infallibility, except it's the king who's supposed to be infallible. So once he signs it, not even he can change it. And you remember in the book of Esther, he was unable to rescind the decree that allowed for the Jews to be killed throughout the empire. Since he couldn't rescind that law, what he did is he made another law which allowed the Jews to defend themselves. And the first law is still there. You're free to kill all the Jews and loot them, but now we're going to arm them so it's no longer a safe thing to do. So he didn't rescind the original order, but made it so that that order was of no effect. And Darius is going to try and do the same thing, but he's going to fail. Verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So this is by way of testifying to Daniel's character. Remember, we've got the business with the food where he doesn't bow down. We've got the business with Belshazzar. We've got the business with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So this whole thing is Jews do not waver with respect to things about God to foreign rulers, no matter what. That's the thing that keeps getting said over and over in these first six chapters. So Daniel is in the habit of praying toward Jerusalem three times a day with his window open. And the whole deal here is he could just as easily close the window and nobody would know. But the fact that he leaves the window open, he doesn't change anything, is an in-your-face, I am not going to bow down to the king. It is designed to be in-your-face. In addition to everything else, he's an old guy and crotchety. 11. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Huh? Huh? Did you make that decree, O king? Huh? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed. 
but makes his petition three times a day. Now, at this point, the king recognizes he's been mousetrapped, and I will tell you the king is not pleased. Verse 14. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored until the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. In other words, we have a special prosecutor and the special prosecutor law says this, and if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, you know, that kind of stuff. This is just typical bureaucratic babbledygook. And the king is upset. Verse 16. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. Notice, by the way, that the king does not try and talk Daniel out of it. Because remember, what happened with Nebuchadnezzar and Hananiah, uh, Mishael, and Amaziah when when they defied the king with the statue and the, and the band, what did the king do? He brought them in, and he said, hey guys, there's been some terrible misunderstanding. Now, if you go ahead and bow down here, everything will be fine. And they said, up yours, O king, we have no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, we're not even going to discuss it with you, king. And that's what ticked him off, and he jacked up the temperature and all that stuff. Notice that Darius doesn't even try that. Darius spends all night trying to figure out a loophole, can't find one, so then just has Daniel thrown in the lion's den. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion's den. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet, and with the signet of his lord, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. So he is ticked sideways, really upset. One of the things to notice, though, is that the sentence is executed. You all remember the incident where Yeshua is in the temple, and they bring the woman who is taken in adultery before him, and they say, all right, Yeshua, what are you going to do here? She was taken in adultery. What does he say? The sentence has to be carried out. Stoner. And oh, by the way, the only ones that are really qualified to do so are those without sin. But he follows Torah directly. Says, Stoner. Oh, if, if anybody here is qualified, step up and do it. But he makes the judgment that the Torah commands, just as Darius does here. He's praying for Daniel, he's fasting. He's hoping that nothing happens to the guy, but he does carry out the law. Verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O oh, Daniel, servant of the living God, as your God whom you serve continually been able to deliver you from the lions. Then Daniel said to the king, O oh, king, live forever. My God set his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless. Before him and also before you, I have done no harm. Now, I want you to notice the difference in Daniel's attitude between Darius and Belshazzar. He clearly respects Darius. He clearly had no respect for Belshazzar. 
and you can see in these two vignettes the striking difference as to how he feels about the two men. Verse 23, Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Now, by the way, it used to be the case in American common law that if someone was sentenced to hang and the rope broke, they didn't get a new rope and try again. In other words, the sentence had been carried out. You were set up there, you had a rope around your neck, you were dropped, and the sentence of the law had been carried out. And once the sentence of the law has been carried out, the law has been satisfied. And we don't need to go find some more rope and try again. My point here is, Daniel has been thrown into the lion's den according to the law. There's nothing in the law that says the lions actually have to eat him. So the fact that he's been thrown into the lion's den meets the requirements of the law. So the next morning, the king is then able to come and say, all right, if you're still alive, come on out, because the law has been fulfilled. And the fact that your God delivered you from the lions is no concern of the laws. The law has been fulfilled. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. 25. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. So he not only serves Darius during his reign, but he serves the succeeding king. This is the end of the storytelling part of the book of Daniel. What we'll have subsequent to this is prophecy and those kinds of things, which as I say is why most people are excited about Daniel. This is also the end of the Aramaic section of the book. The book switches back into Hebrew starting in chapter 7. As I say, the central theme running through all of these first six chapters is the piety of the Jewish people and the power of God to deliver. That's sort of been the point of these first six chapters. And having set up Daniel as being a revealer of secrets, as being wise, as being in connection with his God, what's going to happen now is we'll go into the prophetic sections where we'll backtrack in time. So the first of his visions actually happens during the reign of Belshazzar. So we're going to back up a couple of rulers here and we're going to start picking up some of the dreams and visions that Daniel has and understand that they are not in sequence. In other words, this first six chapters of historical narrative covers a time during which Daniel will receive visions, but those visions are not written about at the time in the narrative when they occur. Mm-hmm.